remembering this. All right, we are underway. Um, and uh, it's good to be back together as a community yeah. group. You know, I know there's been a couple of different things that have happened over the last couple of weeks. Uh, two Sundays ago, I know we met up with a, a handful of other family groups and had a service in the park. Uh, it was led by Drew. It was an awesome, awesome time together uh, that our group had. And I know that hearing from some of the other family groups, it sounds like uh, you guys had a good time with that as well. Then last week, we kind of kicked off our first sort of real uh, life stage midweek. And uh, I know we're part of the Young uh, Families Ministry, and it was so encouraging. I know Ash and I feel like as parents, we have no idea what we're doing, and that's not like false humility. It's like we legit don't know what we're doing. And so uh, John and Brittany kind of walked through, this is how you have a family Devo. And uh, it's really cool because Ash and I, we've never had a family Devo. We didn't grow up in families that did stuff like that. And so just to be able to see them sing with the kids, tell a story, interact with them was so beautiful and uh, something that we definitely want to start implementing. I felt like, no joke, every kid there was invested and like engaged and obedient, except ours. <laughs> it was like walking around everywhere. Oh, my cash is just, look at Maya, look at Phoenix. Like, just follow them, just sit down and be chill. Um, but amen, it didn't happen. But with that being said, some awesome stuff happening. But I have loved these times together going through Genesis as a community group. And I was thinking about it, I'm like, you know, there's been different churches, you know, in our fellowship that I've been a part of where we've gone through a book of the Bible preaching wise. We've all been part of small groups where we have discussions, but I've never been part of something like this where together we kind of walk through a book. And uh, it's really, really cool to be able to do that because I think that topical preaching and all that definitely has its role, right? The series we're doing on deconstruction is awesome, super helpful. Um, but I think there's also something that's really special about being able to walk through an entire book together. And I think one of the things that's so cool about that is it just eliminates a lot of the subjectivity and what you can choose to talk about. Right. Like there are things you come across that you're like, oh, we would never probably talk about this on a Sunday, but it's right here. So we got to deal with it. And I feel like today will definitely be a case in point of that happening. Uh, I would say, in my opinion, that the section that we're going to be beginning tonight in uh, Genesis 5 and, and Genesis 6 might be uh, the most challenging section of Scripture in the entire Bible in terms of just the difficult concepts and topics that we have to wrestle through. In these handful of chapters, we have people that supposedly lived to be over 900 years. We have Enoch being taken up by God. We've got these potential divine beings called the sons of God that come down to earth and marry human women. Uh, we've got the Nephilim, which uh, I guess I was misprint. Did I get it right, Ash? Nephilim? Okay. We've got the Nephilim. What the heck are those things? Do they still exist? What is going on there? We've got the Lord saying he regretted mankind. And then we've also got the flood as well. So there is no shortage of difficult topics to tackle. My goal today, though, is not to tell you, hey, this is the, the one right interpretation on any of these given topics. And don't worry, we will not cover all six or seven of those tonight. But my goal is to instead to point out a couple of the most prominent interpretations of how people wrestle with each one of these topics. To point out some of the important details and context that will help us to make some of those interpretive decisions. Uh, and I know I probably don't need to prerequisite this, but obviously I do not have a full exhaustive knowledge of every detail of every one of these perspectives. And uh, for some of those of you that have been around the last couple of weeks that have uh, been here when I've led a midweek, you're probably like, yeah, we didn't really need that disclaimer. We know uh, that you do not know that. Uh, but I wanted to throw that out there anyways. 
I also want to say too that a lot of times what you'll find with the more complex and confusing a text is, the more that you will get a wide range of uh, interpretations, like a very wide breadth. So when it comes to stuff like the Nephilim, oh man, if you just type in Nephilim on Google, you will see some crazy, crazy stuff. And this is just a reminder that not all perspectives are created equal. So though there is a lot of different uh, perspectives, it doesn't mean that you know everyone is equally valid. So hopefully we'll we'll get a better approach today on how to deal with some of these things. But I think it's so important that we expose ourselves to different interpretive approaches to these difficult texts. And that's not because we need to look for loopholes for God's word, but because oftentimes when we pick up a Bible, you know, two, three thousand years removed from when it was written and we look at it, we have a lot of default interpretations that we don't even realize are functioning in the background. And a lot of times we don't realize that we might not be taking in all the relevant details or context that we need to. A lot of times, too, we're not native Hebrew or Greek speakers, and a lot can get lost in translation. Anyone that speaks two languages can tell you that fact is true. And also, a lot of times we're not aware of the history of how Jews and Christians have wrestled with some of these scriptures for thousands of years. Thinking that we can just sit down, thousands of years removed, and straightforwardly interpret difficult texts without any additional background uh, is at best naive and at worst just arrogant. Understanding some of the dominant views on these difficult topics takes work on our part, but it results in a deeper, richer, and more well-rounded faith. I think one of the most dangerous places that we can be in as a Christian, and I've seen this happen you know, many times, is where we consciously or unconsciously think you know, that with a difficult topic that there's one way to approach it and only one way. And then we rely so much, we put so much pressure on this interpretation is the one, it must be right, and when it's refuted or, you know, kind of shot down, it can destroy faith. You know, I've seen some of the most, like, easy to answer questions when you really dive into something just tear people apart. Because they're not aware that there are other totally legitimate ways to reframe the question or to interpret the scripture. In addition to laying out some of the main perspectives on these, uh, on these issues, another goal for tonight is to not just power through this section, Right. Like the goal is not just, hey, I hope 45 minutes from now no one has lost their faith in God. That's a pretty low bar uh, for what we're hoping to accomplish. And the more that I study out a lot of these texts, the more that I actually am like, wow, we're going through Genesis 5 today, genealogy. It's full of so much beauty and goodness, which I know that a lot of us, when we think about genealogies, probably do not expect. So I hope that we can come away with a more accurate view of God's character and his nature through the end of the night. We're going to have to nerd out a little bit tonight, but I uh, hope you guys are with me. If you guys start feeling bored, uh, feel free to start booing. Uh, there's more room on the couch here. It is a very comfortable couch. Uh, you know, just fall asleep there. Do whatever you guys need to do. Uh, but we're definitely going to be uh, engaging as a group. So recap of where we left off from last time. So Jeff talked about how we see in Cain the cycle that Adam uh, underwent repeating itself, right? In both of these stories, there's a lot going on, you know, in terms of parallels between Adam and Cain. However, with Cain, it's just exponential in terms of like the lying to God, the deception and the sin itself. Uh, Drew talked about how through all this you see God's mercy, that in the same way that God spared Adam's and Eve's life, so he also spared Cain. And not only did he spare Cain from death, but he protected him from anyone taking vengeance on him. 
Pedal shared about how much passion uh, in this interaction you see from God. And I love it, Pedal. I don't even know where you're at right now. Yeah, right there. I just love your commentary each and every week because I feel like you just really point out the genuineness of God and how he's not afraid to get his hands dirty and be in there with us. Uh, you brought That was something that really stuck out to me last week. Uh, Christy talked about the fact that Cain seems indifferent and despondent in his interaction with God until God says, I'm going to cast you out of my presence. And that's a really interesting thing to think about, just that proximity to God and why Cain was so scared when he got outside of God's presence. Cain's life is spared and he's made a wanderer, but he goes and he builds a city. And Jeff talked about how building cities is often associated with being carnal. You know, a lot of times we think, oh, the advance of civilization, the advance of technology, that's a great thing. And it can be, but a lot of times in the Bible it results in arrogance and people growing farther apart from God. And a lot of times there's actually a critique when we see these major advances in civilization, as we'll talk about with Babel. Cain's lineage continues to devolve to the point where uh, we ended last time with Lamech, the seventh in line of Cain, boasting about murdering and violence and vengeance. Uh, We also saw that Lamech takes on multiple wives. Polygamy is introduced. So we just see this, the sin from Adam, we see the sin from Cain, and then we see just the fruitfulness of of sin spreading to so many people in his his line. So with that being said, it left with a pretty bleak picture, but as always, there remains hope. Like we have somebody read Genesis 4, 20 th- 25 through 5, 2. I can. Oh, yes, bro. You already know Zechariah. He reads sometimes before, and I just we all got to acknowledge he has a great voice. He has an awesome, awesome reading voice. So thank you, bro. Thank you. Thank you, man. Uh, you want me to start now? Yeah, it'd be great, man. And Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This was the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. And named them man when they were created. Awesome. Thank you, bro. So what's really important to remember as we get ready to dive into this uh, genealogy and lineage of Seth is to keep these two genealogies uh, in comparison, right? This genealogy of Cain that we saw in chapter four and this genealogy of Seth. Uh, Abel is dead. Cain's lineage has just descended into absolute chaos and violence and despair. And Seth's lineage becomes the promise bearers. And so there's so much in here where you see God's promise and his goodness. And as we read through chapter five, we have to keep chapter four in mind uh, because there's just so much richness that it brings out. Uh, Jeff did a great job last time of highlighting here how much even Adam had changed since we saw them in the garden. There's a definite dependence on God and even a weakness that we didn't fully see before. Uh, we've speculated together. I think it was you, Michelle, that talked about, like, man, where did, where did Cain and Abel learn to worship? Like, I never thought about that question before. And it was probably from Adam and Eve. You know, there was this whole life that this family had grown up together. And even though Adam and Eve had fallen, even though they were away from the tree of life, even though they were out of the garden, they were still in the presence of God and still doing what seemed like a lot right. What's so sad, though, is right here we still see the pain in Eve's voice. 
She says, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And you know what Eve sounds like here? She sounds like a mother who's lost a child. And it's easy for me to read a lot of these facts about the Bible and look at it as just facts and history and all that. And there's a number of reasons I think it can be hard to connect with the human element. Uh, one is, you know, these stories were written a long time ago. Uh, also, we don't have faces or names to put them to. We didn't know these people. Three, we become familiar with the story. And I think also we just become kind of desensitized to stories about murder and violence and all that in the news and movies and all that sort of stuff. But it becomes very easy to lose the human element. But just imagine what Adam and Eve must have felt here. One son is exiled forever. I don't know. We don't even know if they ever see him again in Cain. And the other son is dead, buried in the earth, murdered by his own brother. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, Adam and Eve, they don't even have to wait till their own death to see the repercussions of their sin. They see these repercussions in the most deadly way in the lives of their own child, and they have to bury their own kid. I can only imagine the thoughts that they had of thinking that, you know, if we didn't do this, our sons would still be in the garden. If we had never rebelled, they wouldn't have even known a jealousy or anger or the thought of murder would have never crossed their mind. We opened the door for this to happen. And now Cain is gone and Abel is dead. You know, I've unfortunately over the years lost some different friends in, in tragedies and lost them at a young age. And I'm sure you guys have been to funerals before where uh, you've seen a mother just crying over their child. <coughs> and it's one of those things that I feel like you just never forget, you know. And even seeing moms, you know, weeks, months, years later, dads too, you know, when you lose a child, there's just a part of you that, that changes forever. And we see that here with, with Adam and Eve. It's so painful to see. And so as we read this story, let's just keep in mind that these are real humans and try and insert ourselves in the story because the more abstract and distant we are, the less impactful it is. And yet while it seems like there is, uh, you know, some obvious pain here with Eve, we're transitioning to a beautiful genealogy highlighting what faithfulness to God looks like, where there's a sharp contrast between Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. In, uh, in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, uh, we see this reiteration of Genesis 1 and this explicit tie to the, to back to creation. Uh, here God reaffirms that mankind is made in his image, that man made the male and female, and that he blessed them. Think about this, that after all this transpired, you know, Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, Abel being murdered by his brother Cain, Lamech and his line just descending into total violence and chaos, and God still says, they're still made in my image. Wow. I blessed them in the past and I'm going to bless them in the future. Mm. As we get ready to kick off Seth's genealogy, <laughs> it's very intentional reminder here from God or from the authors that this uh, genealogy is rooted in the promises of God. And what we're about to read in this lineage and the subsequent flood is setting up for a type of almost recreation. Uh, you know, we saw creation in Genesis 1, things descend into chaos. And so through Noah and his lineage, we almost see this recreation of earth after the flood. Genealogies often play a critical role in bridging the gaps in the narrative. You think about how much ground is covered right here between creation to the flood, right? This is five chapters and we don't even know how many years. Um, we see the same thing in the New Testament with Jesus, right? What bridges the old in the New Testament when we kick off Matthew? It's a genealogy. It's a way of remembering God's promises, a way of connecting the story, of kind of giving the whole narrative ligaments that connects it together. 
And here as we compare uh, Cain's genealogy to Seth, or even if we just look at Seth's genealogy in isolation, we see this same tension that has resurfaced throughout Genesis up to this point. This contrast between life and death, between blessing and curse, and between hope and the consequence and reality of sin. And as Jeff mentioned, we need to get real comfortable with this tension in our own lives, right? This idea that, hey, there is pain and there is sin and there is death, but there is also life and there is blessing and there is hope. Whenever we get too skewed to one end or the other, we become imbalanced and spiritually unhealthy. And you might think, how could we ever have too much hope? And it's not that we have too much hope, right? It's that hope that's not rooted in the reality of this world is no hope at all. Right. If we close our eyes of the pain of this world, if we try and suppress what we really see and what God really sees in this world, then it makes it impossible for us to really connect with people. It makes us impossible to see the world as God sees it. Jesus definitely saw the pain and sin of this world, and he was not afraid to address it. God here in Genesis, he sees the pain of this world and the Holy Spirit himself can also be grieved. Yet on the flip side, we can't become so engulfed in the pain of this world that we lose hope, right? Especially as Christians. The trend towards total despair in our, in our society is really alarming. I've heard about this. I don't know how many of you guys have heard of this category of what they call deaths of despair. But it's basically a, a group of uh, deaths that are suicide, drug overdose, and cirrhosis of the liver from alcoholism. And they kind of tracked this and they said, wow, over the last... 20 years, there has been an exponential increase here in the U.S. in these deaths of despair. In fact, in some uh, age groups, those deaths have risen by 400%. There is a meaning crisis in this society we live in. Even though we got a lot of stuff, there are some broken things. And I don't know if you guys feel this, but sometimes I can even hit those moments of despair where I'm just like, man, what am I doing? Like, what what have I become? What is my life? Like, oh, this existential crisis. And Ash is like, why don't you get outside? Why don't you go for a walk? Why don't you grab some fresh air? Call a brother, pray. But I feel like it can be very easy to, to you know, be imbalanced one way or the other, either towards uh, too much hope that neglects the reality of this world or too much despair where we lose all hope together. You guys with me on that? So let's keep these two things in mind as we read through this genealogy. So each of the 10 people we read about here follow kind of a similar pattern with a couple little variances. It's the age when the father is, uh, you know, gives birth to his firstborn. It's the remaining years of his life. It's an acknowledgement of other sons and daughters and uh, the total years of life. And then at the very end, it's the acknowledgement of death. So even in this pattern in the genealogy, we see both the continued gift of life from God, you know, in the form of both procreation and these very long lives. And at the same time, we also see the reality of death over and over and over again in this genealogy. We read, and then he died. So let's let this wash over us as we read it. Can I have somebody else read Genesis 3 through Genesis 24, Genesis 5, verse 3 through Genesis 5, 24. Yeah, come on, Michelle. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him, in his very image. He named his son Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived another 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth was 105 years old, he became the father of Enosh. After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived another 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh was 90 years old, he became the father of Kenan. After the birth of Kenan, Enosh lived another 815 years and had other sons and daughters. 
Enoch lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan was 70 years old, he became the father of Mahalel. After the birth of Mahalel, Kenan lived another 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalel was 65 years old, he became the father of Jared. After the birth of Jared, Mahalalel lived another 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Mahalalel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared was 162 years old, he became the father of Enoch. After the birth of Enoch, Jared lived another 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. <coughs> when Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for another 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years, walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day, he disappeared, because God took him. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I know, what an ending. Because God took him. What, what translation is that? I like that. that is the New Living. The new living, I really like that way more. Yeah, um, yeah. So obviously, this is a, a genealogy right here. I had to pause on Enoch really quick, right? Because we can't just breeze past Enoch, right? There's always so many questions about him. Couple observations here. It says twice that he walked faithfully with God. Uh, this definitely calls back to Genesis one, right, where Adam and Eve are walking right. in the garden uh, with them, and then it also ties to Noah, who later it'll say he also walked faithfully with God. Um, time and time again, we see this, uh, this connection between those who walk faithfully with God and those who are pleasing to God. Uh, additionally, this is the one of the spots where the comparison between uh, Seth's lineage and Cain's lineage is so important. Enoch right here is the seventh uh, in this genealogy. Does anybody know what the number seven sort of represents in, in the Jewish yeah, completion, perfection. Uh, it's the most holy number by far. When we get to the seventh in this genealogy, it's Enoch, this guy who epitomizes faithfulness to the point where he doesn't even experience death, where he's taken up to be with God because he walked faithfully with him. You compare that to the seventh in Cain's line. Who's the seventh in Cain's line? It's Lamech. And so we see this comparison of almost the, the fulfillment or the completeness of sin in Cain's line and this completion or fulfillment of faithfulness in Seth's line. These two things are meant to be uh, compared. Uh, Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleases God. What an amazing legacy to live. Whew, man. All right, we'll pick up uh, in verse 25. Can I have someone bring us home? Genesis 5, 25 through 32. Then after that, we'll pause and have some discussion. All right. All right. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. Pause. Okay. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had, another, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. <coughs> when Lamech ha had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named his, him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and pain, painful toils of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 
595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Awesome. Thank you. So what caused you to pause there for a minute in the beginning? Comparing the other line, the line of Cain, yeah. the Lamech of Adair. Right, you're like... Yeah. The same Lamech, was up? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a, a great question. That's what the text is kind of inviting us into, right? I think normally I would just kind of breeze through this and be like, what? Oh, this is confusing. I don't know. Let me just get to Genesis 6, you know? Um, but again, we see this is a direct comparison, right? The names are not unintentional. It's showing, again, this Lamech and, Lamech and Cain's line that we talked about compared to this very pious uh, Lamech and Seth line. Mm -hmm. He's completely dependent on God. One thing that is, is so interesting here is, uh, you know, at the end of Lamech's life in, in uh, verse 431, it says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, Lamech uh, 77 times. How many years does it say this Sethite Lamech lived? 777. And so it's like this genealogy is just full of these theological implications that is just saying, look, there are two paths, blessing and curse, life and death, sin and faithfulness. Which are you going to choose? And what we'll see in the flood is that the Canaanite lineage is wiped out and that this promise is birthed through Seth and through his lineage. Uh, verse 32, we close out with a very short verse on Noah. Uh, why is that? Because the whole next four chapters are focused on Noah. Uh, before we dive in into discussion, just want to hit a couple quick points about the genealogy and about the main question, which is what's up with people being 900 years old? You know, like, and the follow-up question of that, is there anyone in this room that would actually want to live to be 900 years old? Like, it's a debatable question, but... Um, this is where some context and understanding of various positions can really help us out. Um, as a very important side note, you don't have to feel like you need to choose a particular side or interpretation and stick by that forever. Um, obviously, there are some issues scripturally that we do need to take a stand on. I would argue that how we interpret the ages in Genesis is not one of those issues that we need to put our flag in the ground and stand by and fight at all costs um, because they're really faithful Christians that offer a couple different views. The older I've gotten, the more I've studied, the more I realize that it's OK in certain instances to not be certain about a position, to exercise some humility and to say on this particular topic, these are the views that I'm familiar with. This is the direction that I lean, but I'm not totally certain. That is okay. And in fact, most of the most uh, amazing, impactful uh, Christians and theologians throughout history have had many different topics where they've taken that stand, where they've said, yeah, these are the different interpretations. This is where I lean. Not totally sure, though. And so that is totally okay. Um, in fact, I would argue if we don't feel that way about any topic, we might need to check ourselves a little bit on our certainty. Um, so a couple key points to keep in mind. Long ages indicate blessing. You'll notice that Cain, it doesn't mention a single age. These are the first life lifespans that are mentioned. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's, uh, theologically, it's to indicate blessing, right? Seth's line, as we've talked about, is this lineage that is continuing to be the image bearers of God. They're the ones continuing uh, on in the promises of God that will be the fulfillment of God. 
This is where, you know, Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, Abraham to David, David to Jesus. Um, this is all connected right here. Um, and so it's really important to understand that long ages indicated blessing. Also, some ancient Near Eastern context is really important. Uh, so there was these Sumerian king lists, and in their king lists, these were neighbors of Israel at the current time. Their kings would supposedly live in their myths, you know, to be over 5,000 years old. And so to us, we might look at that and say like, wow, we think 900 years is a long time. But this can actually almost be, some people think, a critique of these other people, of these other religions saying, this is what you think God is like? Like, no, 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 man is mortal. These beings, these kings would be semi-divine uh, beings a lot of times that would live to be 5,000. And in their myths, uh, civilization was always something that indicated progress and uh, better morality. And you look at the critique here, we see the exact opposite. Uh, we see that man is mortal, that there's nobody that is semi-divine and that's living, uh, you know, endless lives for 5,000 years. Enoch's the only one, and it's not because he was divine. It's because he depended and walked faithfully with God. Thirdly, there are clear theological points that are being made in these genealogies. Uh, this doesn't mean that it's not historical either. Uh, but as we read these, it means that they're not primarily trying to present data on how old the earth is or anything like that. That's not their main objective at all. It's, again, I think, in my opinion, to show these two different paths, these two different lifestyles that we can walk and these two different choices that God's people can take. We can take the way of Cain or we can take the way of Seth. And this is all setting up for the dramatic recreation with Noah and the flood. Uh, just to close out, there are really two primary views on these ages, right? There's the closed view, which is a much more literal interpretation that says, you know what? This was basically before there was a lot of disease and before there was genetic mutation. So these ages are to be read literally, you know, and they, people on, in this view would argue that, um, you know, God created the whole universe. It's not that crazy that people live to be 900 years, which there's definitely validity to that. So that's kind of the closed view. The open view says that there are different ways to account for these ages. Um, there's a couple variations to this, um, but also note that these people would also agree that, yes, God has the power to keep people to live 900 years, but that's not what he's saying here. Uh, they would note that uh, among other ancient Near Eastern genealogies, there's tons of evidence a lot of times that people would say this is the father and this is the son, and it included tons of generations in between. So it wasn't just a literal, this is the father, this is the son, um, that there was a gap in there. And so these ages could be, you know, comprehensive ages of these potential really strong patriarchs or whatever. So this could be multiple unnamed generations. Another thing that points to that a little bit, I think, in the text is the fact that there's only one head uh, or only one son that is called out for each person, right? So it's so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so and they had other sons and daughters. So-and-so gave birth to so-and-so and they had other sons and daughters. Um, this happened a ton amongst other ancient Near Eastern gene genealogies where if we picked it up and read it, we would think, oh, so-and-so lived to be, you know, a thousand years old and all that, but it's really identifying the reigns of these really prominent people. So anyways, those are a couple of the different options. Regardless of which view we lean towards, I would say that it's unwise to take a position of absolute certainty on how to interpret this. Uh, the important thing is to remember that both of these views confidently assert that these genealogies concern actual historical people. It's just the differences in how they account for the gaps in the ages, if there are gaps there. 
that is a ton. Uh, it's late. It's Wednesday. It's fall. It's cold outside. We're going to pause there for, uh, for some discussion. Uh, any questions, thoughts you guys have? Uh, yeah, Zechariah. Yeah, two things. I thought of others, but two things that stood out to me was in verse 3. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his son in his own likeness after his image. Mm. I was like, why did it say that? You mm. know? Um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. Was he, Seth is the only one that that said about, yeah. and it's so specific. You know, yeah. and, I, and obviously God, right a few verses up, you know, mm. verse 1, when God created man, he made him in the, in the likeness of God. You know? Yeah. And so... That I was like, oh, why? You know, why was that mentioned? Yeah. And then also with Enoch, it says he lived 365 years, hmm. um, and he's the seventh accounted for. And so I was like, okay. I Googled. I was like, is a Jewish, in the Jewish calendar, do they have 365 days? Um, and apparently it's like 354, but then every 19 years they make an adjustment, so it averages to 365. So it's like with it being him being the seventh, and then that being like a whole by day solar year, like is there some intentionality in that or was it just coincidence, you know? Bro, great. So it's like interesting. Yeah, great observations, great questions. I think from what I've read, a lot of people would say it's in regards to your first question, like why does it say that, uh, you know, Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness and his own image? You did a great job of pointing out the previous verses, right, where it talks about Adam was made in the image of God. And so what a lot of people would say is that this is that image of God being passed down uh, through procreation. And so this idea of kind of the Imago Dei is what you'll hear the image of God called a lot, is that um, this idea that, hey, it's through Seth's line, you know, it's through these people that the image of God is passed down uh, from generation to generation. So rather than saying it for each one, it's just saying from Adam to, you know, uh, Seth, that's where it went. And then it's implied that from there, uh, you know, it's passed down. And the solar calendar, right, it's hard to see 365, you're the seventh, like, and not see some connection there. There's debate about it, but I think, like, the Egyptian calendar, like, 4,000 BC had like 364 days or something. So there probably would have been a knowledge of, of this. And um, yeah, I, I think it adds to it. But again, not a position that I uh, feel like confident staking a claim in the ground. This is 100% absolute. But bro, those are some great observations, man. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I have more of a thought, but I'd be curious to see what other people think. Like in Genesis 6, verse 3, I think is what it is. Says then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, or their days will be 120 years. Mm-hmm. And that sort of like addresses the like in a more literal sense the previous chapter five. And then if you actually look how long the longest human has lived, it's been 122 years. Yeah. Like, is that a literal or is it yeah. supposed to be figured? It's a great question. And then the other difficulty is Abraham lives past 120 years. You know, uh, yeah. there's a couple other people, one other person that lives to like 130 or 140 in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so what a lot of people would say there is they're saying, actually, this is pre-flood. God is given kind of a grace period of 120 years before the flood hits. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's how some people would deal with that. Uh, but I Googled that same thing. I was like, how old is the oldest person? And they said 122 years, some lady in France, you know. And so rather than being people that are like, I want to see a birth certificate, no way, da-da-da. Like, you know, that could be it. Or it could just be, it is kind of shocking, too, that it's like that is as old as people live. Like, it could be more of like a, hey, in general, maybe not to the day, but like around this time, that's the limit to life. So, um yeah, there's quite a few different debates around that, but it's a great 
Great question. Yeah, Pip. I'm just reflecting on that phrase in my Bible, Enoch walked with God. Right. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. That idea that just to walk with him. Mm -hmm. And just that phraseology that he stayed with him. Just mm -hmm. walked with God. And how you see so many other ones, they failed because of that. Like mm -hmm. the early Genesis says uh, that um, when Adam and Eve had messed up, God was walking in the garden during the cool of the day. Mm -hmm. Right? He's walking. Where are they? <laughs> They're not walking with him. Cain didn't walk with him. Mm -hmm. But how simply Enoch walked with God. I think to myself too, just personally, if 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 my legacy is summed up in four words, mm. Enoch walked with God. Mm. Are those the four words people choose if they had to choose four? Mm. So just so powerful to have. I mean, it's a very simple statement. They don't have a lot of details in terms of you know, etc. But you know, just it just reflects for me as someone you know who's loved God, loves God and chasing after God. You come with it, Pedro. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I feel like there's just such a simplicity, a consistency, a beauty, a intimacy with walking with God, you know, um, and did it for a long time, too, you know, for a long period. And I feel like just, man, how different would my life be if every day I was like, God, I just want to walk with you today, you know, right. um, you know, versus like, I feel like a lot of times with me, it's like sprint. Pulled a hammy, fell down, crashed, burned, get up, sprint, you know, like just, no, calm down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so I just want to say, so when we started doing this, I um, I went through the, I started listening to the Bible, like, and I started from Genesis, right? And just like audio, audio Bible, listening to it. And I remember getting, getting through to chapter five of Genesis, and I was walking, I'm sure I was walking. Um, and when I got to this point, I literally stopped, and I heard, I heard the whole Lamp, you know, the genealogy, and then, you know, Lamech and, you know, his dad, whatever, and then Lamech again, right, on the set line, and I stopped, and I rewind to, to, to make sure I, I was, because I knew I heard that thing, like, a mile back ago, you know what I mean, with, uh, with Kane's line, and um, yeah. so I've been waiting for this time mm. to figure out why are there two Lamechs in the Bible. Um, and it's, it's really crazy because like so many things are still similar with the two lines. Mm. You know, um, like even Lamech's dad. Mm. I, I think here it's Methuselah and then for Cain, on Cain's line, Lamech's dad is also like a Methuselah something. Mm. You know, I'm like, did the Damn. writer just like pick and choose just to make it, make it flow well, you know, <laughs> just to create that, you know? Um, and even the, the fact that like Seth's son was Enoch and Cain's son was Enoch, oh no, Ket's, Ket, Seth's son was Enosh mm. and Cain's son was Enoch, mm. right? Like, mm -hmm. would this have been the, the author's intentionality in choosing those sons? Because even Seth, he said, he said he had a son, Enosh, and other sons and daughters. So did he choose this Enosh son to show 
to help us with that link? Yeah, you, you know what I mean. It's a great question, man. And I so I love, I love first of all that you you brought us to the point of comparing the two because I never, I never connected with that. It, it, it would have all just been me reading words on a page Same. until yeah, you me you mentioned the comparing the two lines. So this is all still. Very exciting yeah. in my brain and my heart right now. Yeah, so yeah. thanks for that. I know, but I love it. I, I didn't want to express that. Okay, is it, is it some sort of picking and choosing to really make that point? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could, like when we think about genealogies, right? Like I've never done an uh, ancestry or anything like that. Right. But for me, it would get like... It would just be names and dates after like three or four generations, if I'm being totally honest. And I know not everyone feels that way. Different people feel different. But to me, it would just be names and dates. And they did not read genealogies without like a deeper theological purpose. And so I definitely think, man, that's a great question. Like, you know. Was were these specifically chosen just to show that? Because yeah, it sounds like they probably if they lived hundreds of years, they probably had tons of kids. You know, mm-hmm. like there's a very you know high likelihood. Obviously, they weren't the most creative bunch with names. You know, um, <laughs> but uh, but even culturally, like, we can right, see different yeah, yeah. cultures. And you're like, oh man, you know, in this culture, this is a common name where it feels like every tenth person has that name. So um, yeah, that's a really good question. I don't have a good answer to, but yeah, maybe it is that of all these kids, I'm gonna select like this one just again so that we can really draw the distinctions between Seth and Cain and their lineage so yeah yeah Um, I think two things I really like that you had kind of brought up is taking one of your points and kind of I was putting it in my own words but the idea that hope devoid and blind of the hurts and realities of this world is incompassionate ignorance Mm -hmm. and I just thought that was such a great point that we can't be oh we're all about hope and completely ignore kind of people's hurts. So I really appreciated that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but then something that really stood out to me is just in that first couple of verses where it says, we're made in God's image. I think that can become so cliche, but the fact that that's what's starting off is we've just come out of the fall of mankind, and now there's sin, and now Cain kills Abel. We're still made in his image. Mm. Um, kind of one of my spiritual disciplines is there's a really old piece of Orthodox liturgy that I've just been reciting, but it constantly keeps talking about you're made in image, there's sin, but let us be refashioned. You're made mm. in God's image that led to sin, but let us go to him and let's be refashioned. Mm. Um, and so I think it's such a great reminder and it's mm. such an awesome point just to fix ourselves on. Yeah, man, you said that way more articulately than I did for <laughs> sure. I almost want to like ask you to repeat it one more time. But um, <laughs> but yeah, and what the crazy part is, is like again after the flood, I think in, in Genesis 9, again, God double, triples down on you are made in the image of God. And uh, that's something so important because all of us have probably experienced that, you know, unintentionally. Maybe I've probably done this to people, too, where somebody's grieving and you just don't know what to do. And so you just want to tell them, like, no, it's, it's okay. God's in control. Offer some platitudes. Like, it's making me feel uncomfortable. Like, I don't know what to do. And, uh, yeah, I think that there is just, like, when you're on the other side of that, you feel like, man, I'm really trying to grieve. And it feels like you're trying to shut me up or ignore this pain or the world's on fire. And then you come to midweek and it's like, hey, happy Wednesday, guys. What's, you know, let's sing. And you're like, wait, are we going to talk about what's happening? You know, the streets are on fire. And it can just be, uh, like, a little divorce from reality sometimes. So, yeah, definitely think we need to find that balance. Sorry, LaShawn. Um, I, so recently I've been things like that and like really stick to the Bible um, just because I've been like presented with a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different things but I want to for myself you know be able to truly know like 
what is it that like God is saying but I think that it's difficult for me because I can get wrapped in like oh the Jewish the Hebrew is this the real translation is this you know um things like that so I guess I'm wondering like as I'm like going through and like because I can't even like really listen to the Bible I have to like sit down and like read it because I'm like my brain is like just too much and I'm like how am I supposed to like you know research and, and, and find this so I guess like what is like in your opinion I guess the I guess like the healthy I don't know like proportion of like uh reading the Bible like for what it is but also knowing like this is translated from like different languages like there might be things that are like lost in translation and kind of just like being okay with maybe not getting it right what a great question (laughs) and like there's no it's definitely more of an art for each person than a science like i think the first thing is like and I, you know, should have mentioned this more, but like always leaving room for the spirit to work, mm-hmm. you know, and like not just like cliche, gotta say it, but like really, like some of the most amazing times aren't when you're in a commentary or a podcast, but it's just when you and God, you're in the word with God and you just, Holy Spirit is working and you just see something in there where you're like, wow, this is amazing. Um, I think also just depends on like our capacity, our spiritual maturity. I know there's certain topics and things that I'm really glad I didn't start studying out when I was like first getting to know God straight out of the world that would have just been too much for me at the time um and then there could just be such a data overload right it feels like there's always new podcasts always new perspectives mm-hmm. that sometimes the best thing we can do is just shut it all out and realize that hey we're not going to be an expert in everything there's no way I, I remember when I was thinking about going to seminary talking to some some teachers and they were like you need to find a specialty you know because you can't be an expert on everything and uh so yeah i feel like that's a very uh long-winded answer but a great question i would love to hear what other people think too but uh yeah between and mark can i yeah yeah go ahead please respond um so as we've been doing this it's been really great to do it in community and to hear other people's thoughts and i love a good podcast uh, so <laughs> feel, but I think that I feel like it's so easy to start getting making the Bible very informational mm-hmm. than more transformational, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that I can be faithful to God without knowing every twist and turn of the word mm-hmm. because my faith comes by hearing, so I think there's got to be a balance in how I wrestle with scripture because I can understand the Hebrew, but not I'm not changed. So, mm-hmm. I, to me, I'm like, what good is it for me to know, like what this meant, the interpretation, but there's no heart change. So I think it, it, it's just a, an interesting balance of having to figure out how do I be a learner and learn those things, but really walk in humility and say, the goal of this is, the story isn't about me. The Bible is about God. It's mm-hmm. not about me. It's about knowing who God is and then finding myself in the story. So I think it's it's just an interesting balance to wrestle with, because if I'm not careful, I just want to, I'm just filled with information, but yeah. there's no transformation. And I think totally. one of the scriptures that's been helping me, it's in Luke 24 when, you know, the two men were walking, Jesus finds them, like, after he rose from the dead, and they don't, they don't know, right? So he, they invite him over, and then they re, he reveals himself to them. And there's one line in verse 25, it says, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And I love that. That's mm-hmm. been, like, that is what I need to do is to go to Jesus. You, He has the power to open my mind. He made my mind. He made my heart. So he gets to help me 
to open my mind to understand what I'm reading. So today, every day, open my mind to understand your word. You are the word in the flesh. Mm -hmm. So he wants me to know him. So I think if my desire, if your desire is I just want to know God, God will draw near. Mm -hmm. Like I think God is not going to complicate. I'm not saying we shouldn't learn the Hebrew and all that stuff, but I think there's got to be a good balance so we don't get lost yeah. and just walking oh i couldn't agree more to me i feel like that's such a good point and it's amazing how many uh even bible professors like are atheists you know or like agnostic you're like what you know so much about the bible and you're agnostic like you don't even believe this stuff and so i definitely think too that there's like we're all built different so some people like are naturally skeptical have tons of doubts you know i'm more built that way but i love people that just aren't that way as much so they're like this whatever this doesn't bother me i don't need to look at it you know but I think for me, I'm more built that way where I'm like, ooh, I can push this question that I have down only for so long before the doubts really start to affect my view of God. And I think the only other thing I would say is just exposing ourselves to different perspectives sometimes can reveal like blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. To where you get exposed to a new idea or something like that. And you're like, I've been reading these same scriptures and I've never connected those dots or met, you know. Yeah. things like that so uh I totally agree with that it's all about the heart though you know and like really involving God in the process and um the Holy Spirit um for sure for sure yeah um first of all great job thank you for that mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> um and kind of to what you were saying about like the blind spots I just remember you told me that your professor said something to the effect of bad theology hurts people and that just stuck with me, like, because I think about how I was raised spiritually in churches and stuff like that in the South and how, yeah, it was, it was that theology. I mean, you know, that really had some consequences for my faith and, you know, um, this set some foundations as well, too. But anyway, my question or my thought was, okay, so... I guess I'm curious what other people think. I know we don't have time to open that up for a discussion, but just with the repetitions in the book of Genesis, like, and some of the things like the 777 years and like, it can sometimes feel like code, you know, or this like secret, like, you know, like if you're like part of this cult, you'll understand it, like, you know, and I'm just, yeah, I'm curious about that. Like, um, just... I don't know if there's any other book of the Bible that I see that in as much as I see it in Genesis. And, you know, what, I noticed some argument of, like, other different authors and, like, maybe what God's heart was behind repeating certain things or having some of that, like, seventh son, you know, and one was, like, righteous and one was simple. Like, I just, I don't know. It's just a random thought out there, but it's just, it's exciting, Mm -hmm. but it's also, like, it's interesting that, you know, this book of the Bible does that that now yeah. totally agree yeah i think i would say like daniel uh revelation you know like some mm-hmm. of those more apocryphal or not apocryphal but uh mm-hmm. yeah like those some of those books have a lot where you're like well people can go in a bunch of different yeah. directions but i think too if you were to transplant a jewish person 2500 years ago to our culture today there would be all sorts of things that they would say like 
well, this makes no sense. Why do you guys do this and that? Whereas I think for them, like some of these patterns and things like that were probably a lot more just natural and second nature. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that it's uh, it's definitely a, probably more of a cultural thing than it is like a code to crack. But mm-hmm. I can definitely sympathize with that. I've definitely felt that mm-hmm. the same way too, especially with Revelation. Mm-hmm. You know, like the dragon, three heads, and mm-hmm. da-da-da. It can just get like overwhelming. Yeah. Right? yeah. I had an observation. Um, so I homeschool Finley, have a ten-year-old, and we are part of a hybrid, and we are learning Genesis one, and we put it to a song. So they have sign language, and um, I think it's so amazing how everything is intentional. So we started this Genesis study, and I've learned so much through the song at school and through listening to you and Jeff. And the one thing that, that I keep coming back to, that I keep hearing, is that we are made in God's image. And mm-hmm. I think this day and age, people are just so confused about who they are. And I feel like God just keeps saying it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Know who you are. I have plans for you. And I have plans to prosper you, give you a hope in the future. You are made in my image. Mm-hmm. And so I think teaching children that, mm-hmm. you're, who are you? You're made in God's image. That's yeah. who you are. And I think... <clears throat> That is what's helping, going to help a generation of, of children mm-hmm. to say, oh, I am made in God's image. I don't have to question who I am. I'm made in God's image. Oh, yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I couldn't agree more. Just the identity, you know, issues, you know, and social media and us propping up our identities and all that is such a issue now that this message resonates as much now as it did thousands of years ago. And uh, I think the more, too, that I can try to see other people as the image of God and not just a person to be utilized or, you know, people based on production or whatever, um, the more I can see them as a human being made in God's image, um, just the easier it is to have compassion and love for that person. Yeah. So yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, we'll wrap it up after you two. Uh, we'll go to Jeet and then Mark and then wrap it up. I just want to share something that, you know, I, I got reminded. When I was studying the Bible, coming from the Islamic world, you know, you were always questioned about the integrity of Bible. Mm. Hey, Bible has changed this and that, you know, translated that and that, you know. So I was studying the Bible, and the the, the guy uh, who studied the Bible with me was a medical doctor. And he gave me an analogy, you know. He said, okay, your dad writes you a letter, and there are 10 spelling mistakes on that letter. Is your dad still going to be your dad? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or... You are gonna speak on the spelling mistake or translation mistake. Mm. It's stuck in my mind for the whole life, mm. and I never question about whether I understand these or not. Mm. You know, yeah. uh, if I understand, that's well and good. If yeah. I don't understand it, God, God is still gonna be my God. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that is. That is. It's so well said, Suji. You know, I think yeah. uh, just keeping in mind, like, and I think that's what I try to mention in the beginning is just hopefully we can see the character and nature of God through this all. You know, that through all this pain and suffering, we still see God's goodness. We still see His hope. We still Him say, say, putting His stamp on us, saying, "You are mine. I love you. You're made in my image. I'm gonna bless you. I bless you in the past. I'll bless you in the future for sure." I know also for me, somebody growing up in Seattle. Uh, 
when I didn't have any answer to questions like this, which came up all the time with people, uh, sometimes it did sh- just people just weren't interested, you know, and, and just the idea that, hey, well, just believe it. I don't know. You know, like to me wasn't I didn't feel satisfied with that. And so I think that's kind of what made me want to study deeper. But again, we don't need to be experts in every realm or anything like that. Um, but I think your perspective of, yeah, this is all about God. And it's a love letter from God to us is the most important thing that we can remember. Regardless of whether we're reading Genesis, Old Testament, New Testament, all of it, man. I agree. I you know, close out with Mark. Yeah, you know, I think I'm a pretty simple theologian. If it says it, that's what it says. These men walked with God. That meant they walked with God. So, uh, you know... The guys say, walk with God. They must, God must like to walk. He walked in the garden. Jesus walked a lot. These people walked. They must have been walking. So it, it, the obvious is the simplest. And then thinking about how they imitated. Now, Jesus walked with his disciples all the time. Uh, Steve Shock and I go to East Cow Park all the time. What do we do? We walk around. We talk. We pray. I'm sure God's with us because we're walking with God. So I'm just saying, I don't think it's that complicated. But in modern society, we're very egocentric, and we expect God to come to us. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm accepted into my heart, or accepted into my life. That's not the issue. question. Is he going to accept you? That's the question. But, <laughs> but, but really, the question of all of us is, are we really walking with God? Do we really want to do that? Yeah. Because it has implications. Moses, I mean, uh, Noah, it says he walked with God, and there's not a lot of dialogue. God says stuff, and Noah, and Noah doesn't. You know I mean? Wow. So must be walking with God as God does the talking and we do the listening and we don't pay what he says. Because that's I mean, you read the next chapter. There's not dialogue. It's not a big discussion. You're not debating God. God's just telling you what to do and you're walking with him. So I think that it, it, it's separate of that. Maybe we ought to all walk. All of us. I'm talking in the room here. Walk and pray to God. Because that, maybe that's what these guys did. So I think it's fairly simple, but it's challenging that we have to really make a commitment to that. They were all going to walk with God. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. I think we need to walk with God, absolutely. I also think part of being all things to all people is not just when people do have questions or doubts or whatever, saying, hey, well, just be simple. Just don't ask God. Just be quiet. Uh, You know, so I think as we especially walk through this uh, series on deconstruction, is really trying to just be people that are thoughtful about answering uh, those questions about walking with God, keeping first things first. Yes, keeping the most important things in mind. So... Um, with that being said, we will uh, close out with a prayer. Uh, Father God, we just want to say thank you so much for today. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for loving us. Uh, just thank you for opening up the Bible, even during tough, you know, sections like this. God, some of us are built so different to where it's like, why are we even talking about this? And others are probably feeling like, finally, I have an answer or a reason to, to be able to uh, think about this in different ways, God. So I pray that you would just give all of us just your spirit of humility, God, of joy, of peace, of love, of kindness, God. It is such a beautiful thing to be able to come together as brothers and sisters, open this thing up. And this is what Jews and Christians have done for thousands of years, God, is talk about your word, Lord. And it doesn't mean that we all just see you or see the word in the exact same ways. But I love that we can do this. I'm so thankful to be part of a family like this, God. We pray that more than anything that we would just see you more accurately as you really are, God. That we would keep the most important things in mind. Walking with you like Enoch. Being faithful through the ups and downs. Being consistent, God. You are so good. And uh, we're not doing this on our own, God. This isn't just a test. You give us your spirit. You give us each other. 
Uh, you give us the example of our brother Jesus to be able to walk in this world boldly and courageously, God, no matter what the world throws at us. We thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you.